Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. The Dow managed to shrug off a better than 300-point decline earlier this morning to close positive by just under 100 points, 94 spot 6.5. That was a gain of 0.27%, although tech stocks did a lot better than that. The Nasdaq was up 1.5%, and the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund up just under 4%. But the stocks that shined the brightest today were the meme stocks, GameStop, up almost 25% today, and AMC up 45% in one day. Now, there's no real news driving these stocks higher. It's just people buying all the stocks that are beaten down the most, the stocks that were the most overpriced to begin with, and the ones that fell the most are the ones that investors are buying. Now, there were some rumors floating around today that maybe Russia and the Ukraine are getting closer to some kind of agreement. I have no idea if that's true or not, or if that's even why we got the rally. That did, though, help push the price of crude oil down $10 a barrel, although oil was down better than $10 a barrel, I think, before I even heard those rumors. I think initially oil sold off 
when the European Union rejected Russia's demands to be paid rubles for their oil. There's also rumors circulating around that maybe they want to be paid in gold or maybe they want to get paid in Bitcoin. That certainly didn't do anything to help the price of gold, which was down better than $30 today, but it sure as hell did help Bitcoin, which was up rather substantially. As I'm recording this, Bitcoin is back above $48,000 per Bitcoin. But I think gold's $36 drop is more likely the reason that Bitcoin went up than whatever rumors are floating around about Russia, because Bitcoin really is the anti-gold. And if gold is going down, it probably means Bitcoin is going up. In fact, if the ARK Innovation Fund is rising, well, Bitcoin's probably rising. In fact, Bitcoin's rise has a lot in common with that big rise in AMC or GameStop, because all of this is just pure, unadulterated speculation. People are buying the most speculative assets out there because they think the price is gonna go up. So don't look for any real fundamental reasons for the increase in the share price of GameStop or AMC. They're going up because people are dumb enough to buy. And that is the exact same reason that Bitcoin is going up. People are dumb enough to buy. If they were smart, they would be buying this pullback in gold because it's not going to last. Because what's happening in the bigger picture is extremely bullish for gold. In fact, one of the things that happened overnight that the stock market also ignored is another inversion in the yield curve. On the last podcast, I talked about the five-year inverting with the 10-year where the yield on five-year treasuries exceeded the yield on 10-year treasuries. And I speculated that by this year, the same inversion would take place between the fives and the 30s, and it's already done it on Monday. In fact, the inversion was a little greater Sunday night. But as I am recording the podcast here on Monday afternoon, I am looking at the yields on U.S. treasuries. And the yield right now on a five-year treasury is two spot five six percent and the yield on a 30-year treasury is two spot five four percent so you're getting two basis points of additional yield taking 25 years less risk in buying treasuries now why is the yield curve priced this way again i went over that investors expect a recession probably sometime in the next year, maybe starting this year, because by next year, investors expect the Fed to be cutting interest rates to fight off recession. And that may be true. They may be doing that. But the yield curve should not be inverted. The yields on 10-year and 30-year treasuries should be soaring despite the fact that we're headed into recession because inflation is not going to go away. Obviously, what bond investors are assuming is that the Fed can kick the can down the road for another 30 years. There is no way that that's going to happen. In fact, what we're witnessing right now is proof that the Federal Reserve has already lost control of inflation. And because they've lost control over inflation, the party is over. They can't continue to kick this can anymore because they no longer have a pretense for 0% interest rates or quantitative easing because all of that was based on the fact that there was no inflation or that inflation was too low. Clearly, they can't use that excuse anymore. We have lots of inflation. It's not too low. 
It never was too low, but what it is now is much too high and it's getting higher. And so there is no way that the Fed is going to be able to maintain this game for another 30 years because what the market is saying by pricing the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond at 2.54%, the markets believe basically that interest rates are going to stay near zero for the next 30 years. That what's going to happen is every time the Fed tries to raise rates above zero, it's going to cause a recession and then it's going to immediately cut rates back to zero, do more QE, and then it's going to stimulate the economy again. We're going to have another phony recovery. Eventually, the Fed's going to be able to lift rates above zero, maybe get them up to 1%, who knows, and then another recession back to zero, more QE. The balance sheet keeps growing and growing and growing. First 9 trillion, then 18 trillion, then 50 trillion, 100 trillion, whatever. We continue to play this game of ever expanding balance sheet, all this money creation, and yet somehow, miracle of miracle, there's still no inflation. Forget about what we're looking at right now because that's just COVID, that's just Putin, that's going to go away. We can create all this money, run all these deficits, expand the balance sheet up to infinity, yet inflation is going to stay at zero and investors are going to continue to loan money to the U.S. Treasury at 2.5%. That is crazy. It's not going to happen. This is blowing up right now. And bond investors are going to get killed. I mean, they are like the deer in a headlight. They have no idea what's about to hit them if they don't think things have changed, if they don't understand and recognize that the Fed can no longer get away with what it's been getting away with. And another place this is obviously evident because you've got a similar problem in Japan right now and they're already panicking. One of the reasons that you had this big drop overnight in the price of gold was that you had a big drop in the Japanese yen. At one point, the Japanese yen was down almost 2%. Now, it paired those losses, I think, ended up down about 1.5%. But the reason for the big drop in the yen was a statement that came out on policy by the Bank of Japan. And when the yen tanked, gold went down with it because there has been a pretty big correlation between yen and the price of gold, even though clearly it's been diverging somewhat recently because the yen hit a record low overnight priced in gold. In fact, it hit a six-year low in dollars, but it's never been this low in terms of gold. But if you go back and look at some of the really big days where you see a big move up or down in the yen, you generally see a big move up or down in gold in the same direction. So you have that kind of correlation. So I think reflexively, when traders see a big move in the yen, they're going to take action in the gold market. So yen way down, let's sell some gold. Yen way up, let's buy some gold. But what caused the yen to drop was the Bank of Japan came out and said they were drawing a line in the sand and and they were going to make sure that the yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds did not go above 25 basis points. And the Bank of Japan said that the bank was prepared to buy an unlimited quantity of Japanese government bonds and obviously create out of thin air an unlimited quantity of Japanese yen in order to buy those Japanese government bonds to prevent the market from raising the yield above 0.25%. Now, why is the Bank of Japan doing this? Why are they price fixing the yield and saying, we are going to put a cap 
on long-term interest rates. We're not just trying to control the short end of the curve. We want to control the long end of the curve. And we don't care how many Japanese yen we have to print. We're going to keep on doing it. And we're going to buy all the bonds that anybody wants to sell at 25 basis points. Well, if they actually make good on this commitment, the Bank of Japan is going to own all the Japanese government bonds, because if there's any entity out there willing to buy a Japanese government bond and pay that much for it, you'd have to be an idiot not to sell your bonds to the Bank of Japan. And so I think a lot of people are going to take the Bank of Japan up on that asinine offer. And the question is, how long before the Bank of Japan throws in the towel and allows rates to rise? Because they need to rise. If you look at what's going on with inflation right now in Japan, the last year-over-year increase in the Japanese CPI is 2.7%. But that's consumer prices. If you look at their wholesale prices, the February year-over-year rise, which is the last one I saw, was 9.3%. That is the biggest year-over-year increase in wholesale prices since 1985. And of course, the Japanese economy is particularly vulnerable to oil prices because they don't produce any themselves and they import it all. Now, of course, Japan has a trade surplus so they can afford to import oil, but obviously they're going to have to pay a lot more for their oil given what's going on. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Features like antivirus, an award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Data breach monitoring, which enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised or whether your passwords need to be changed. Also, firewall protection keeps personal information secure and prevents attacks that seek to access your computer or steal your data. I've successfully used Avast myself for years to secure my data. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. So the inflation numbers in Japan are very high and they're going higher. Now, I looked at some of the expectations that analysts have for CPI in Japan for all of 2022 and they think the CPI is going to end up at 0.9. So in other words, they don't even think it's going to be 1%. Now, I don't know where they have such an absurd forecast given that we already have a year-over-year increase in wholesale prices of 9.3 and retailers have a long way to go to catch up. They still have to raise prices to make up for what they gave up in the last year, let alone the additional cost increases that they're going to be hit with during the current year. So I think the actual number for inflation in Japan in 2022 is going to be a lot worse than 0.9, especially if the Bank of Japan keeps printing yen to buy an unlimited quantity of Japanese government bonds to keep the yield artificially pegged at just 25 basis points. Now, this really illustrates the absurdity and the hypocrisy regarding the Bank of Japan's policy and the lies that they've been telling to justify it. Because the whole reason that the Bank of Japan has expanded its balance sheet so much 
and has enabled the Japanese government to take on so much debt. Debt to GDP in Japan is about 250%, whereas in the United States, debt to GDP is about 125%. So in other words, Japan has a debt to GDP that's twice as high as the debt to GDP in the U.S. And a lot of people point this out. They say, Peter, if you think the U.S. is in trouble, look at Japan. Japan's in more trouble because they have more debt. And if you just look at the debt to GDP, that doesn't tell the whole story. Because first of all, we have a lot of state and local government debt that you don't have in Japan. And so if you add the state and local government debt to the federal government debt, you're now at about 140% of GDP, still nowhere near 250, but it's quite a bit worse than 125. But also we've got a lot of unfunded liabilities. We have a much greater national debt in terms of the unfunded liabilities than you have in Japan. But there's another key difference between the debt that we have and the debt that the Japanese have in that the Japanese are more able to repay it because the Japanese private sector is flush. They've got a lot of wealth. They have a lot of savings. They can afford to repay this debt. They may not want to. They may not be happy about it, but they have the capacity to do it. In fact, if you look at who holds Japanese government bonds, it's almost exclusively the Japanese. Whereas in the United States, a lot of our debt is held internationally. Americans can't afford to pay it back. And in fact, when the Japanese are repaying their debt, they're repaying other Japanese. So it's bad for the people on the hook to pay it, but at least you got other Japanese that are on the receiving end. But in the U.S., you have a lot of creditors who are outside the United States. And so it's going to be a net drain on the national income when Americans have to repay foreigners for the money that they borrow. But also, Japan is a creditor nation. Japan has a trade surplus, the mirror image of the United States, which is the world's biggest debtor with the world's biggest trade deficit. In fact, we owe Japan. Japan has 1.3 trillion of U.S. treasuries. So clearly, if they wanted to pay off some of their national debt, they can sell those U.S. treasuries and pay off a chunk of it. I mean, they're not going to pay off all of it, but they can pay off a decent chunk. But, you know, we don't have any Japanese government bonds to sell to help pay off our debt. So I think that even though the Japanese government has a greater debt to GDP than the U.S. government, their problem isn't as big, but it is big, and they're having to deal with it right now because of what the Bank of Japan just did. And the question is, why did they do it? Because the pretense for doing it in the first place, the reason that they've kept interest rates so low and done all this quantitative easing was because they claimed that there wasn't enough inflation in Japan. The Japanese tried to blame the economic malaise that has existed in Japan on a lack of inflation. They said, you know, we just don't have enough inflation. Prices are not going up fast enough. And if we just had more inflation, then we would have more prosperity. And so we're going to design a monetary and fiscal policy that is designed to create more inflation. And as a result of having more inflation, we'll have more economic growth. Now, this was a lie. And I've been calling out the Bank of Japan for this lie the whole time they've been telling it. Because there are problems in Japan, but they have nothing to do with an absence of inflation. In fact, an absence of inflation is one of the things they got going for them. Because not having inflation is a good thing. Low prices are better than higher prices. Falling prices are better than rising prices. The whole idea that falling prices are bad is sheer nonsense. 
It's the way central bankers and politicians justify an irrational monetary policy. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But now you can see that it was all a lie because if the year-over-year inflation is 2.7% and if wholesale inflation is 9.3%, how can anybody argue that the problem in Japan now is not enough inflation and that the Bank of Japan should double down, in fact, infinity down on the very policy that was pursued when their goal was more inflation? Because is that their goal now? Is the Bank of Japan claiming that we need more inflation? In fact, we need it more than ever. And so now we're going to have an even more inflationary monetary policy than the inflationary policy we had in the past? No, all the evidence is they overdid it. If the goal of the Bank of Japan was to create inflation, well, they succeeded. Well, why don't they just go home? Hey, it finally worked. All these years of printing money have finally paid off. We now have the inflation that we've hoped for. I guess we can let interest rates go up now. We can stop printing money. We've reached the finish line. Everything is going to be great now that we've got all this inflation. No, they've got all this inflation and apparently they need more. Apparently it's not enough. What that shows you is that this was never about inflation. Why was the Bank of Japan buying all these treasuries? Why did they want to keep interest rates from going up? Because the Japanese government has so much debt that if interest rates went up, all hell would break loose because the Japanese government would then have to level with Japanese voters and say, you know what? We racked up all this debt. Time to pay the piper. We're going to have to have huge tax increases to cover this exploding debt burden. We have to service this debt. Interest rates have gone up. And now you, the Japanese taxpayer, are going to have to pony up for all the extravagances of Japanese politicians. Well, Japanese politicians didn't want to be held to account for all the debt they ran up. So the only way they can spare Japanese taxpayers from having to pay higher taxes or certain Japanese citizens to receive big cuts in government benefits was for the Bank of Japan to artificially suppress interest rates by buying Japanese government bonds so that interest rates wouldn't go up so that they didn't have to raise taxes or cut spending. But of course, by keeping interest rates artificially low, they encouraged the Japanese government to take on even more debt because there were no immediate consequences of the higher debt because the Bank of Japan was sparing the Japanese government from having to deal with those consequences by artificially suppressing interest rates. But now you've come to a point where they printed so much yen and they've created so much inflation. And maybe for years, what 
this inflation was doing was preventing prices from falling. Maybe the Japanese would have had the benefit of falling prices as a result of their economic productivity, but they were robbed of falling prices by inflation. But now inflation is so high that it's simply not just preventing prices from falling, it's causing prices to really rise. And now the Bank of Japan has an inflation problem on its hands and it is deliberately pouring gasoline on the fire because the bigger problem that it's concerned about is the ability of the Japanese government to afford to service its national debt at 250% of GDP. You're talking they have 11.6 trillion in debt versus a $5 trillion economy. The Bank of Japan's balance sheet is already 6 trillion yen, more than the entire size of the Japanese economy. How much more room do they have to expand it? Clearly, there is no more room because inflation is already breaking out in Japan just the way it is here. The question is, how long before the Fed has to turn Japanese? Because it's my opinion that what's happening in Japan right now is going to happen in the United States. And before I get to that, what I think is going to happen in Japan is at some point, the Japanese are going to have to flip. There's going to be a pivot. The Bank of Japan is going to have to back away from this open-ended commitment to peg rates at 0.25 basis points. Because if they're really going to try to do that, their balance sheet is just going to explode. Inflation is going to explode. And it's going to become a huge issue in Japan. The Japanese are going to get clobbered by the inflation tax. The Bank of Japan is trying to spare Japanese politicians from the embarrassment of having to raise taxes. Well, the Japanese public are going to pay higher taxes one way or another. It's either going to be official tax increases or it's going to be the inflation tax. But I think there is going to be a lot of pressure when inflation doesn't subside the way everybody is saying. When it doesn't end up being 0.9, let's say it ends the year at 4% or 5%. And all indications are that it will be higher the following year. The Bank of Japan is going to have to do an abrupt change in policy. And whereas I don't think the Fed has the balls to do it, I think the Bank of Japan will because the Japanese economy has the capacity to deal with higher rates and the U.S. doesn't. I mean, it's not going to be fun. Japanese aren't going to like it. And a lot of the incumbent politicians may find that they no longer have easy jobs and are going to have to find real jobs. But I think the Japanese can afford to pay these higher rates. Now, of course, they would not be in this predicament had it not been for these irrational policies for the last couple of decades by the Bank of Japan. And a lot of it started when the stock market and real estate bubble popped in the 1980s. And then instead of allowing free market forces to fully correct the imbalances, the Bank of Japan intervened, the government intervened. They didn't want companies to fail that should have failed. They wanted to prop things up. And so the government did a lot of damage. And one of the things that the Japanese were concerned about was the exchange rate between the yen and the dollar. In fact, one of the reasons they wanted to keep interest rates really low was to prevent the U.S. dollar from falling against the Japanese yen because they wanted to preserve their export market. Because the Japanese were more concerned about exporting to the United States and not understanding that the only reason to export is to pay for your imports. Exporting is not an ends in and of itself. It is a means to an ends. You export to earn foreign exchange to pay for your imports. It makes no sense to endlessly vendor finance a deadbeat trading partner who all they can do 
is buy from you, but never makes anything to sell you in return. It was a foolish policy to hitch their horse to our wagon. They should have cut it. I mean, the Chinese have made the same mistake. A lot of countries have made this mistake of thinking that their economic prosperity hinges on selling stuff to America. It's actually the reverse. America's economic prosperity hinges on the rest of the world giving us stuff, thinking they're selling to us, but actually giving to us because they never get paid. We just give them IOUs that they can never redeem. It's like paying for stuff by writing a check, but the people who get your checks agree never to deposit them. They just put them in a drawer somewhere and they just stack up there. They get all your checks and maybe every once in a while you write them another check that represent interests on the checks they've never deposited, but meanwhile, they never deposit the checks. So since you know that your creditors are never depositing your checks, well, you could write all the checks you want without actually having any balance in your bank account because what difference does it make how many checks you write if all the people that you give your checks to agree to never try to cash them? Because then, well, you can keep on writing checks. You know, it reminds me of that old joke about the housewife who doesn't understand why her check bounced because she still has plenty of checks left in her book. Right? We've got an unlimited number of checks and we just keep on writing them and writing them and our trading partners are content to never deposit them. But had the Bank of Japan not pursued this foolish policy, they would not be in the predicament that they're in right now. But the United States is in the same predicament and we are going to experience an even bigger day of reckoning and it's not going to happen when our debt to GDP is 250% because that is too big. The numbers are not going to work, especially when we are dependent on international financing for our deficits. And we also have this demographic time bomb going off in entitlements in Social Security and Medicare, where our debt is going to be ballooning. There is no way that we're going to be able to make it to the point where Japan already is. I think We're maybe months behind Japan in the Fed having to go all in, at least try to, and peg bond yields. Because at some point, the market and the economy is going to be concerned with rising long-term interest rates. And at some point, long-term interest rates are going to be much higher than they are now. I mean, look at the trajectory of rates. And rates were down slightly on the day, even as that yield curve inverted. But still, rates barely moved down. And the uptrend is very, very powerful. And we're going to continue to see big moves upward in longer-term interest rates. And rates are going to continuously surprise the market by how high they go and how quickly they get there. And at some point, these rising rates are going to get to the level where they become a problem, where they become a problem for the markets, where they become a problem for debtors, especially the U.S. government. And then what is the Federal Reserve going to do? Well, they're going to do just what the Bank of Japan is doing. They're going to intervene. They're going to say, we cannot let long-term interest rates rise anymore. We're going to have to restart QE, assuming they've ever actually stopped it, assuming they've ever started to do quantitative tightening. They're going to have to reverse course and go back to quantitative easing because that's going to be the only way to stop bond prices from falling and yields from rising. Of course, the minute they do that, 
they launch inflation into a whole new gear, which is why it can't work. It's the same reason why it won't work in Japan, because as Japan is committed to keeping yields at 0.25, they have to create more inflation in order to make good on that commitment. Well, as inflation gets higher and higher, more and more Japanese owners of Japanese government bonds see the light and they want out. So the more money the Bank of Japan prints to buy JGBs, the more JGBs there are for sale, which means the more JGBs they're gonna have to buy, which means the more money they're gonna have to print, and it's a vicious circle. The same thing is gonna happen in the US. The minute the Federal Reserve commits to defending a particular yield, well, everybody is gonna wanna sell their bonds to the Fed because the Fed is overpaying. The Fed is out there saying, we will pay more for your bonds than the market value of those bonds. That's what the Bank of Japan is saying. Bank of Japan is telling investors, sell your bonds to us because we will give you more than anybody else will give you because other people are making a rational decision and the Bank of Japan is making an irrational decision. Other people have to pay real money that they earned and the Bank of Japan can pay fake money that it prints out of thin air. And so obviously everybody is going to hit their bid. The same thing is going to happen with the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury comes out and says, we're going to buy an unlimited number of treasuries. Well, they're going to because everybody with treasuries is going to start to sell. But the problem that the Fed is going to have is that it's not just treasury bond prices that are going to be falling. All bonds are going to be falling because if inflation is a problem, it's not just a problem for U.S. treasuries. It's a problem for all bonds. And anybody lending money, doesn't matter who they're lending it to, is going to have to charge a higher premium in order to be compensated for higher inflation. And so as the Fed is printing money to stop yields on treasuries from rising, yields on muni bonds are going to be soaring. Yields on corporate bonds are going to be soaring. All yields are going to be soaring. Mortgage bonds are going to be soaring. Well, then what? Well, now the Fed's going to have to start buying up all the mortgages. The Fed's going to have to buy up all the muni bonds. The Fed's going to have to buy up all the corporate bonds. And as they expand the QE program to include more and more bonds, well, they have to print more and more money to buy those bonds. And now they have even more inflation, which creates even more incentive for the private investors who own those bonds to sell them to the Fed. And you get into this perpetual spiral and there is no way out. Now, my guess is that the Japanese will get out. They will turn off the spigots soon enough because they can basically afford to do it. It won't be easy, but it will be better than the alternative. Whereas here in the United States, We can't afford to do the right thing. It's better than the alternative, which we can afford even less. But I think that we will push that envelope as far as we can. And I think American politicians and central bankers probably have the hubris to believe that they can get away with it. I mean, everybody believes we can get away with it. We've gotten away with it for so long. And people like me who've been saying, hey, it can't go on forever. It can't go on forever. Well, as far as everybody is concerned, it has gone on forever. And people like me, well, we don't know what we're talking about. We're just stop clocks. We're chicken littles, gloom and doomers. So don't listen to anything that Peter Schiff has to say. There's so much complacency out there that I think we'll just assume that if we just keep on doing it, everything is going to magically work out because it always has and it won't. We are headed for a monetary disaster. All of the evidence is there. The warning signs couldn't be any clearer. The problem is most of the people who see those signs have no idea what they mean 
have no idea there's even a problem. As I said many times on the podcast, when you don't know there's a bubble, you don't see the pin. Well, in this case, it's the mother of all bubbles and there's pins everywhere. Yet nobody sees any of those pins because the people who are trapped inside a bubble and who have spent their entire life living in that bubble have no idea where they are and have no idea what reality actually looks like. Well, they're about to find out the hard way. One of the big mistakes people make when they're buying life insurance is they buy a whole life policy when what they really need is term life. Don't confuse insurance with investing. Don't try to turn your insurance policy into an investment program. Keep those two separate because when it comes to insurance, what you want is the biggest possible death benefit with the lowest possible premium. And that's what you get with term life insurance. It allows you to buy more protection for the people in your family who depend on you when they depend on you the most. And Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone, a laptop, and a few spare minutes. Ladder smart algorithms work in real time and you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. If you prefer to talk to an actual person, their team of licensed agents are standing by to help. And they don't work on commission, so they're there to help you, not upsell you. And there are no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you can get a full refund. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the the best time to cross that off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about one provision in President Biden's latest budget proposal that basically amounts to the latest iteration of a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren style wealth tax. And what Biden is calling for is a minimum tax on billionaires of 20% of their total household income. Now, first of all, a billionaire is defined as anyone with a total net worth of 100 million or more. So clearly having a $100 million net worth doesn't make you a billionaire, but according to President Biden, it does. Now, their justification for calling it a billionaire's tax is they claim that the majority of the tax will be paid by billionaires, which may be the case, but certainly the majority of people paying the tax will not be billionaires. And of course, since the tax itself probably would not be indexed to inflation, at the rate inflation is going right now, at some point in the not-too-distant future, Even people who don't currently qualify as millionaires may find themselves subject to the billionaire tax because that's how high inflation will drive asset prices. But if your asset prices are simply keeping pace with your cost of living, maybe your asset prices go up tenfold, but your cost of living 10Xs at the same time, you're not any richer, but all of a sudden you may be subject to a billionaire's tax that you wouldn't have been subject to absent inflation. But redefining billionaire is the least of my concern when it comes to the dishonesty inherent in this billionaire tax. What's really dishonest is Biden's attempt to change the definition of income. Because when Biden is talking about your total household income, and the reason he uses the word total is because he believes that the rich 
in particular billionaires, are not really paying taxes on their total income. They're just paying taxes on some of their income. The income that Biden believes is escaping taxation is the unrealized appreciation in assets. Billionaires own a lot of assets. I mean, so do non-billionaires, but billionaires own more assets. That's one of the reasons they're billionaires. They have a lot of stocks. They have a lot of real estate. And in the type of environment we're in now, asset prices are going up. And so the rich are getting richer based on the value of their assets. According to Biden, the annual appreciation in these assets amounts to income that is somehow escaping taxation. And Biden wants to subject those unrealized gains to the income tax, except you can't do that legally because it's not income. You see, Congress can't simply redefine the word income so it can tax something that is not income by pretending that it is. Because just because you own an asset and it goes up in value, it doesn't mean you've derived any income from owning that asset. If I own a piece of property and I rent it out and then I get rental income that exceeds my expenses, well, I guess you could tax that because that's rental income. But if I just own a house and I live in it and I don't rent it out to anybody and I don't sell it, I don't have any income. Now, let's say I buy a house for a million dollars and years later I sell it for $2 million you can say, oh, I have a million dollars of income because I gained a million dollars that I didn't have before. I took a million dollars and I bought a house. Then I sold the same house and I got $2 million. I have a million dollar gain. And Congress is taxing that gain as a million dollars of income. But if I buy a house for a million dollars and I never sell it, even though it's worth $2 million, I haven't gained anything because I haven't sold the house. I still own it. It's the same house I owned when I bought it. And who knows what the value may be in the future by the time I sell it. Maybe it goes down in value. Maybe it burns down in a fire and I lose the whole thing. Who knows? If I haven't sold it, no income has been realized. So what Biden is really trying to do is not tax income. He's trying to tax property. He's trying to put a property tax on real estate, a property tax on stocks, but he's trying to measure the tax based on the annual appreciation of the property. But it doesn't matter how you measure the tax. What matters is what you're taxing. And it is a property tax. If you don't have any income, then it can't be an income tax. You only own property. And if you're paying a tax by virtue of the fact that you own property, you are paying a property tax, not an income tax. And the reason there is a big difference is because the only reason that the government could get away with levying a direct tax on income is because the 16th Amendment reads that Congress can lay and collect taxes on income without regard to apportionment. But the 16th Amendment only applies to direct taxes on income it doesn't apply to other direct taxes like direct taxes on property. And so if Biden wants to impose a direct tax on property, it is still subject to the rule of apportionment. And that is a very important rule. In fact, there's only one thing that the Constitution says twice, and that's that direct taxes need to be apportioned. Now, if the founding fathers put it in there twice and it's the only thing they put in there twice, then you damn well know it's important. And it was so important that it required a constitutional amendment 
to pass the income tax. And if you don't understand what apportionment means, I'll explain it to you. So let's say the government wanted to raise money through a millionaire tax or a billionaire tax, some type of property tax on the rich. What the government would have to first do is decide how much money it wants to raise every year. It just can't impose a tax and see what comes in. It has to decide how much it wants. So let's say the government says, we want $100 billion. Okay, now they got to figure out how much each state's population is in proportion to the country. So let's say California has 10% of the population. Well, now the government says, hey, California, you need to come up with 10 billion. That's 10% of the 100 billion we need. So we're going to have a property tax on the rich. You got to raise $10 billion. So you figure out what tax rates you need and what income levels or net worth levels you want to use in order to come up with your 10 billion. But then you take a smaller, poorer state like Mississippi, let's say that state is only 1% of the population, well, it still has to come up with 1% of the tax, even though it doesn't have a lot of billionaires, or probably no billionaires at all, and it doesn't have nearly as many millionaires. So California may be able to come up with its $10 billion by just having a 10% tax on people that have $100 million net worth. But Mississippi... Mississippi may have to tax people that have net worths of just $5 million and up, and maybe the rate would have to be 50%. I mean, I have no idea, but clearly the rates would apply to far more people and be much higher in a poor state like Mississippi than a rich state like California. So obviously a state like Mississippi would never vote for that type of a tax that was going to fall so disproportionately high on its residents, which is exactly why that requirement is there. The founding fathers did not want the poor states to vote for taxes that they weren't going to pay and try to redistribute wealth from the rich states. So that requirement is in there and the government can't get around it. Now, they can't try to get around it by redefining what income is and then taxing that new definition of income because it's not up to Congress to define income. Because if Congress could define income, well, then it could amend the Constitution through legislation, which you can't do. Because what income is will always be a legal matter. And so the courts are going to have to rule, and they have on multiple occasions, what income is because Congress can't do it. Because if Congress had the power to decide what income is, well, then Congress would have the power to decide what the Constitution says, because you're talking about a constitutional term. And to give you an example of this, the Internal Revenue Code does not even define the word income. Now, a lot of people would say, Peter, what are you talking about? How can the Internal Revenue Code of the United States, which taxes income, not even define that which it's taxing? And I'm telling you, it doesn't define it. And hardly anybody in this country even understands this. The only reason I know is because my father pointed it out to me, and now I'm going to point it out to you. But if you ask a typical accountant or anybody that works for the IRS, where in the Internal Revenue Code is the word income defined, they will tell you to go to Code Section 61. Title 26 is the Internal Revenue Code, Code Section 61. And if you go to Code Section 61, you will see the title, Gross Income Defined. Not income defined, but gross income defined. And then if you read the definition, it starts out, except as otherwise provided in this subtitle, gross income means all income from whatever source derived, and then it continues. But you'll notice it says gross income means all income. Well, what if you don't know what income is? 
You don't know what gross income is either because income is never defined. You see, when you're trying to define something, you can't use the word that you're trying to define in the definition of the word. Because if you don't know what the word means, then you don't understand that definition. Nowhere in the Internal Revenue Code is the word income defined. They only define gross income. As an example, what if you didn't know what a dog was and you went to a dictionary and you looked for the word dog, but they didn't have a dog, but they had the definition of a big dog. And so then you read the definition and it said a big dog is a dog, only bigger. Well, you still wouldn't know what a dog was, even though you knew what a big dog was, because you don't know what a dog itself is. Now, I'm looking at a definition of a dog and it says dog. This is just off the internet. I Googled it. A domesticated carnivorous mammal that typically has a long snout, an acute sense of smell, non-retractable claws, and a barking, howling, or whining voice. Okay, all right, now I know what a dog is. Now, if a dictionary says a big dog, it can say, see dog, only bigger. But unless you define dog, the definition of a big dog is meaningless if it just says a dog, only bigger. The same applies to the Internal Revenue Code. Gross income doesn't tell you what income is if the word income is used in the definition of gross income and nowhere in the Internal Revenue Code do they ever define income. And the reason they don't is because they can't because it's up to the U.S. Supreme Court to determine what income is because it's a constitutional issue. You have to look at the 16th Amendment. The 16th Amendment says Congress can tax income. So the courts have to define what income is that the Constitution is authorizing the U.S. Congress to tax. And if they want to tax something that is not income, well, they got to amend the Constitution again, which they are not going to do. Now, how has the Supreme Court defined income? Well, they defined it on numerous occasions, and they have never defined it to include the unrealized gains of assets. In fact, they have specifically defined income so that it's clear that it doesn't apply to unrealized gains, which is why they've never been taxed. We've had an income tax for over 100 years, and there's never been a tax on unrealized gains. Why is that? Because Congress doesn't want to tax those unrealized gains? No, because the Constitution prohibits them from doing it unless they want to apportion it, which they're never going to do. Now, it's probably not likely that this thing is even going to pass, so it's probably a moot point. But if it were to pass, clearly it would be subject to a constitutional challenge. Somebody would pay the tax and then sue on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. But it would be extremely disruptive for the several years it would take for the Supreme Court to strike it down. Certainly, a lot of these billionaires would be forced to sell large quantities of their stock into the market in order to raise enough money to pay this tax. And just because it's unconstitutional doesn't mean it won't be upheld. I mean, there's always some judge that's going to rule that something's constitutional, even though it's not. I mean, look at Obamacare. They should have struck that down, but they didn't. So is it possible that the current Supreme Court could overturn over 100 years of established precedent on what income means and claim that unrealized gains are now all of a sudden income? It's possible the current Supreme Court nominee that Biden picked, I'm sure she would do it because she doesn't care about the Constitution. Neither do any of these so-called liberal judges. All they care about is big government. They want government to be bigger. And so they're going to ignore the Constitution because it stands in the way of their political agenda. Now, I suppose they could also claim that a tax on property is not a direct tax, that, oh, it's just an indirect tax, which is not true. It's clearly a direct tax. In fact, not only did the Pollock case rule that property taxes are direct taxes, but the Bershaber case, 
which came after the 16th Amendment, went out of its way to reiterate the fact that the Pollock decision was correct in its ruling that property taxes are direct taxes. So all you have in the Supreme Court is precedent that a tax on property is a direct tax, needs to be apportioned. If you're going to tax unrealized gains, you're taxing property, not income. It's got to be apportioned. And the definition of income does not include unrealized gains. So it's open and shut. But again, I wouldn't put it past the U.S. Supreme Court to close its eyes and rubber stamp it anyway. But I also want to talk about one more ridiculous aspect of this, and that is the motivation. Why is it that the Biden administration and the Democrats want to redefine what income is so they can tax the billionaires and the millionaires? And what makes them mad is that you have a lot of very rich people who are sitting on highly appreciated assets that they are not selling. What they're doing is they're taking out loans, they're borrowing money against these assets, and then they're buying a bunch of stuff. They're buying mansions, they're buying yachts, they're buying private jets, and they haven't paid any taxes. And this really infuriates the politicians and they want to get at these fortunes. Well, the irony of it is, if it wasn't for their big government policies, none of this would be happening. Why is it that rich people are sitting on such highly appreciated assets. Well, because of the current monetary policy. We are pursuing a reckless monetary policy of artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing in order to prop up big government to finance these deficit spendings. And so because of this monetary policy, the rich are sitting on these big gains. But the reason they're able to access those gains cheaply is because the Fed is keeping interest rates artificially low. So if you are a billionaire and you can borrow money against your stocks and pay a 2% interest and no tax on the money you borrow, because if you borrow money, it's not income. You got to pay it back. So you can't pay an income tax on the money you borrow, right? When you go out and buy a house, somebody buys a house and they borrow $500,000, the IRS doesn't say, oh, you have $500,000 of income because you took out a mortgage. Of course not. Well, the same thing applies to the rich. You borrow $500 million against a multi-billion dollar stock portfolio. That's not income. Now, if the cost of servicing that debt is 2%, it's a no-brainer. Why not borrow at 2%? 2% is a lot lower than the 20% capital gains tax. I'll borrow the money. I'll pay 2% instead of 20%. And who cares about margin calls? I know my stocks are going to keep going up because they never go down. In fact, I've got the Federal Reserve with a put that's going to protect me in case my stocks ever go down. They're just going to print more money to prop them up, which means even more inflation, which wipes out the value of the money I borrowed. So the government has created a situation where it's very easy for rich people, billionaires in particular, to live a great life and not pay taxes when they keep on borrowing money against their assets. Well, I've got a much better solution than trying to unconstitutionally levy an unapportioned direct tax on property. How about if we stop this monetary madness? How about if the Fed stops monetizing government debt? How about if we let interest rates go up? Because if we had a real interest rate in this country right now, rates might be 10% if you wanted to take out a margin loan against your stock portfolio. Now, if it was a choice between paying a 20% capital gains tax or paying 10% interest every year, most people would choose to sell their stocks and pay the tax. Because if you borrow money at 10%, 
After three years, you've paid 30%. After four years, you've paid 40%. At 2%, it takes 10 years before you even get to 20%, which is the capital gain tax rate. So there, it's a no-brainer. But you let interest rates go up to 10%, there isn't a billionaire out there that's going to borrow at that rate. They will sell their stocks. Now, of course, they won't have nearly as big a gain in an environment where interest rates are 10% versus when they were able to borrow at 2%. But that's, again, another example of the government trying to solve a problem it created with more government instead of recognizing that its monetary policies are the source of the problem and the solution isn't another fiscal program, it's to reform the monetary policy that is causing the problem because what they're gonna be doing with the fiscal policy is just gonna create a bigger problem. Now, another way around this would be to have a tax on consumption because right now the rich are borrowing a bunch of money that doesn't constitute income, and then they spend the money and the federal government doesn't get any taxes because there is no federal sales tax on yachts or mansions or jet planes or designer clothing or expensive jewelry or whatever, right? None of these things are subject to a federal tax. So what would be a much better way to get at the fortunes of the rich would be to tax articles of consumption that the rich buy and raise money that way. So if they borrow money and buy something, they're still gonna pay a tax because they're paying the tax when they buy something. Now, I know a lot of people would say, well, what if there's a billionaire who's like a miser, who doesn't spend anything? He just lets his wealth grow and grow and grow, right? He's gonna escape taxation. Well, that's fine because that money is being used productively in the economy. It's growing the economy. It's capital that's providing for capital investment, job creation. We need rich people to underconsume. So if you've got a really rich person who's spending none of his wealth on himself, he's like a benefactor. Why tax that wealth? Only tax wealthy people when they spend the wealth, not when they're creating their wealth, because society benefits from wealth creation. And by the way, nobody lives forever. So if you have some miserly guy who's earning all this money and not spending any of it, when he dies, somebody's going to inherit that money and someone's going to spend it. Now, maybe he'll leave it all to charity and then the charity is going to spend it. Or maybe he'll give it to his kids and his kids are just going to party and they're going to spend a lot of money. So the taxes are going to get paid. But the longer we can refrain from taxing that wealth, the more society will benefit from the productive use of that wealth. The bottom line, though, is not only is this closet wealth tax unconstitutional, it's completely unnecessary because the government is trying to solve a problem of its own creation. That was basically the title of my last podcast, The Government Worsens Every Problem It Creates. This problem of the rich getting richer and avoiding taxation by borrowing heavily against appreciated assets is a 100% consequence of the insane monetary policy that they're currently running. And instead of recognizing their own culpability in creating this problem and getting to the root cause of the problem by changing the monetary policy, they want to fall back on the concept that two wrongs make a right. We screwed up with our monetary policy, so if we screw up on fiscal policy too, those two wrongs will somehow equal a right. They won't. The best way to solve a problem caused by big government is to make government smaller. And that includes central banks. So if the Fed is creating a problem, the solution is not to try to legislate around that problem, but the solution is for the Federal Reserve to reverse course and undo the damage that it's done. Of course, that's not going to happen until we get a massive monetary crisis 
And the good news or the bad news, depending on how you want to look at it, is that monetary crisis is right around the corner. 